So as baskets are making their way around, I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we are three or four weeks into our series on the book of Genesis. Here's a question for you this morning as you're you're turning there. What's the most amazing thing that you have ever seen that makes you say, this is God's greatest creation? What is, that, what is that place you've been? What is that site you've seen? Personally, I think about Monument Valley in Utah or the Fiji Islands in the South Pacific or Mount Kilimanjaro or Matterhorn in the Swiss Alps, all places I've personally visited, I'll have you know. On Soren in Epcot, yes, we've made that journey quite a few times. But what would make your playlist for God's greatest and grandest creation? Seriously, like, is it, is it Niagara Falls? Is it the Grand Canyon? Is it Mount Everest? If you were foolish enough to try to ascend that beast. I mean, I mean, granted, all stunning, all transcendent. And as we've seen through our study through Genesis 1 to this point, days 1 through 5, this is all the stuff that God made. Ex nihilo, out of his mouth, from nothing. The land, the ocean, the skies, the mountains, the sun, the stars, all of it, he spoke forth with a word. Now, as grand and as amazing as all those things are, it is hard for us to believe, however, that as we come to day six here in Genesis, we're going to find that all of those things are a distant second to God's greatest and grandest creation. We're going to be in Genesis 1:26 and following this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. We're going to read from 26 down through 31. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired word. May he write its truths upon our hearts. You may be seated. We notice right off something is very different about day six. Up to this point, God has just been giving sort of divine commands, fiats, and things have been happening. Let there be lights, and let there be oceans, let there be the sun and the stars. But here in verse 26, look there, we see something for the very first time that we haven't seen when God says, let 
us. Now, we're going to come back to this here shortly and unpack this more, but this signals to us that something unique is happening that has not happened in any other part of God's creation to this point. Something distinct is going on. There's something flowing from God into man. There is something personal, relational, communal. In fact, this is so unique, so never before happened in the history of the world. You'll notice that down in verse 31, God says it was very good. The other days were good. The Matterhorn and Monument Valley, those were good. But man, no, no, no. This was very good. You'll also notice that that formula, it's morning and it's evening, it's the sixth day. The first five days, you don't see this in the English, but in the Hebrew, there's no definite article, the. It's just kind of assumed you supply it. But here, Moses seems to make special, special attention to put the the there. It's almost as if to say, this is how unique and this is how special this day is. It is the sixth day. It's unique. It's a set apart. And we have to ask, why? What is so unique about this particular day? What's so unique about a human as compared to a mountain? Hey, or, a, or a child as held up against a massive mountain range or waterfall? What, what's so unique about this? And, and the answer, I think, is, is pretty self-evident, and we want to spend our time unpacking it, and it's simply this. Four Oaks, God has created something more like himself in man than he has in any other part of his creation. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, the clearest representation we have on this earth is we just have to look in the mirror. We have to look around. God has, in fact, with us made something that's in his image. Everything from here onward in the book of Genesis flows from that reality. We're going to spend some time in the coming weeks looking at work and rest and men and women and dominion and marriage and sexuality. All of it goes back to the headstream, the source that man and woman are made in the image of God. So we're calling this message the peace de resistance, or as we say in the panhandle, the peace de resistance, right? That's how we pronounce it here. It, it just means masterpiece. It's a word that means it, it's actually used to, to denote the chief part of the meal, the crowning achievement. God saves the very best for last. It's this part of creation that God is intimately bound up in more than any other. And so that's where we're going today. If, you're, if you've been following along in your, in your sermon booklets, and we provide these for, to take notes for your community groups, for your personal times, we're, we're actually jumping ahead one week in these books um, and coming back to dominion and rest and work and rest next week just because the more I looked at this, the more it was so compelling <laughs> that we, 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 need to, we need to tackle this one first. So two points today. We talk about the image of God. What does it mean? What does it mean? Why is it important? 
Okay, pretty straightforward. What does it mean? Why is it important? Let's tackle what does it mean. Look back at verse 26. Interesting language Moses uses. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, what, what, is, what does that mean? I think it was maybe last summer. I can't remember. Susan and I went out of town for a little while. And my dad came in and stayed with our kids. And by dad coming in and staying with the kids, I mean dad came down so he could be babysat by the kids. You understand how this works, right? And, and I remember one of you came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I, I met this visitor at church. And I had never seen this person before. But I looked, took one look at him, and I knew immediately this was your father, right? And you're always horrified when you hear something like that. And, and you were like, the likeness was so striking, and, and it was a little disconcerting. I've always thought of my dad as a rather plain-looking man. But nonetheless, <laughs> he doesn't listen to these online, so it's okay. <laughs> what terms do we use when we, when we say things like this? What do we say? He or she is a spitting image, Right? A chip off the old block. In fact, the word image literally means resemblance. It means to carve out of, as in a piece of wood. We wonder where that terminology come from, comes from. Literally, we are a chip off God. Now, the pagan version of the image of God, and this was a, a prevalent term culturally at the time that Moses was writing. They would have been exposed to it in Egypt. It didn't work this way. See, the image was that little tiki statue, right? That little thing that you put in your, um, you put in your kitchen or your little elf on a shelf, you know, at Christmas time or whatever. It's just, it's a cheap substitute. It's like going to the dollar store instead of Neiman Marcus. Although, let me tell you, the dollar store is not to be trifled with. Let me just tell you that right now. That's not the way Moses uses this term. That's not what he means. Wayne Grudem says this, The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. See, in the ancient Near East, when Alexander the Great or Caesar or whoever would come rolling through and conquer your territory, one of the first things that they would do it was to mint money. They would mint new coins, and guess whose image they put on there? Themselves, right? It's interesting, in the United States, part of the reaction against this in our history was that your face can't be on a, if you're alive, you can't be on a dollar bill or coin. It's only for those who have, who've deceased, who've gone on for, for precisely this reason. Because it was, it was sort of the idea that even if the emperor wasn't present with you, Every time you would pull out your money to pay for something, there is this big old mug right on that coin, right? And what are you reminded of? I've got a sovereign. I have somebody who's my boss. If I don't do what he says, he might kill me or what have you. I mean, it was to provoke a sense of, of fear, of awe, to remind them who ruled them, who owned them. See, when God decided, I want to give a reminder to my creation about who I am. When God decided, I want, to, I want to give a visible representation of myself to my creation, guess what? He created you. 
Wayne Grudem again says this, it will probably amaze us to realize that when the creator of the universe wanted to create something in his image, something more like himself than all the rest of the creation, he made us. Now let's get the importance of what Moses is saying here. Man is not inferior to the creation, nor is he merely a part of the creation, part of the circle of life. Man is above creation. Man is the crowning achievement of creation. He is actually the way that God has chosen to represent himself. You know, oftentimes you hear this, and and I've said it and done it as well, I want to go out in nature so I can get close to God right? So I can behold his beauty and I can look at his majesty. And there's nothing wrong with that. The psalmist tells us absolutely do that. But if you want to get the closest look of God that you can on a human level outside of his word, just come be with his people. See, that's, that's the magnitude of what Moses is saying here, that God has chosen us, men and women, to represent him God has chosen man that through him and her, he's going to make himself visible through flesh and blood. And and this has all sorts of implications, all sorts of tomes, piles of ink have been spilled on this whole image thing. Let me just mention sort of five ways briefly that you and I as image bearers are like God, okay, are like God. Five areas, and let me go through them somewhat quickly. Number one, we are like him spiritually. And here's what I mean by this. We know that God is an eternal being. He has no beginning, no end. He's always been. He always will be. He lives forever. And you and I are like him in this way. You are created with a soul that can never die. You are an embodied soul Just as God is eternal, guess what? Your soul is eternal. Your soul, my soul, will spend eternity either in heaven in the presence of God or in hell separated from him. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. There is no other aspect of God's creation that we can say this. Don't send me the email about is is Fido going to be in heaven, okay? Because I'll probably lie and say yes, okay? I I just will because that's what we do. I, don't, I can't answer that question, but I can answer this one. You have a soul that can never die. Spiritually, that is true of you and me because we are made in the image of God. Number two, we are like God relationally. Now let's get back to this little, this part here where it says, let us, okay? When God says, let us. Remember, God has been Elohim. It's been in the singular, in a sense, thus far, Now, it's hard to know what Moses knew when he was writing this. But looking back, and if you look back at verse 2 in Genesis 1, there we see this idea that Moses says the Spirit of God is hovering over the water. Okay? He is, is, and there's this idea that, that, that God is, is existing not just as a singularity, but as a plurality, plurality. Think about what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. What what does Paul say about Jesus Christ? He says that he is the firstborn of all creation. 
For it was by him, for him, through him, in him that everything was made. That Jesus Christ was the chief operator of the creation, the one on the front lines creating on behalf of the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that God waits until he creates man before he begins to reveal himself as personal? See, God is a relational being. And God created man and woman to be in relationship with one another and with him and as a community um, of people living on the face of the earth. We're going to talk some more about the implications of this for marriage and sexuality and all those sorts of things here in a couple of weeks. But let me just say this. One reason when we get to Genesis 2 that God is going to say it is not good for man to be alone is that Adam in himself, by himself, did not fully reflect the image of God as it would be if there was a man and a woman together. God says they are both made in my image. And see, this has an analog to the, to the Trinity. Because as the Father is, is of the Son and the Holy Spirit are one substance, yet three persons in community together, a husband and wife or men and women, because they are one substance, yet different persons in community together, they embody this aspect of the Trinity. See, when we come together like we are here on Sunday, when, when we're in our marriages, when we're in our community groups, we're, we're embodying something about the image of God. That we have personhood and personality and that we are in relationship and that God has designed it that way and that's the way it will be forever. So we are like God relationally. Number three, we are like God morally. See, it's to human beings and human beings alone that we have given this, been given this innate sense of right and wrong. We have a conscience Paul tells us in Romans 1 that even, even those who disavow a knowledge of God, a disavow, disavow a knowledge of Christ, there is something in us, in our soul, that knows that there is a higher law, a higher authority than our own selves. And so all of these instructions that we're going to see God give Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil these commands, these instructions, these warnings all appeal to the fact that man and woman as made in the image of God are morally, morally responsible. Let me just say something about this briefly. In our therapeutic age where we are very quick to pinpoint factors that have influenced us negatively, whether it's our parents, some sort of trauma in our life, um, our background, the way we've been treated, some sort of abuse. First of all, let me just say, all of those are fundamentally, absolutely factors that shape who we are. There is no question about it. In fact, I would even go so far, if you are ignorant of those things, if you're not processing those things, if you're not self-aware of those things, they will continue to pump toxicity into your present life. However, 
They aren't to be the primary category by which we are to look at our own hearts and our own actions. Isn't it interesting that it is to man and man alone who is accountable to God, that we are responsible to God? When, when Adam sinned, what was his first impulse? It's the woman you gave me. And we haven't stopped that since. We have to remember that ultimately all of us are moral beings with capacities to choose between right and wrong, between good and evil, between God's law and ourselves. So we are made like God morally. Number four, we are made like God mentally. I'm sure your, your, your pet is very smart, okay? I'm sure he speaks his, his or her own little love language to you, right? I, I, I'm sure y'all have your own thing. Your, your pet is you. Some of y'all are shaking your heads like, nope, that dog's going to the pound as quick as possible. So, but, but understand something. There's something about being made in the image of God where we can have the capacity to create, to have personality, to have emotions, to have abstract reasoning, something that's distinct from every other aspect of the creation. That's why you're not merely a part of the creation, but you and I have been given dominion over it and stewardship over it. There is a clear dividing line between man and the rest of God's creation. And then finally, let me just say one more thing here. We are like God physically. Now, you may say, well, Pastor Paul, where does that come from? Don't we like recite the children's catechism that says God has not a body like man and God is a spirit? And that is all, all true. But if you ever thought about why God has given you ears, God has given you eyes, God has given you a mouth, because those are to point you to something. You see that God hears everything. God speaks to us through his word. God sees everything. God knows everything. In our, in our capacity for image bearers, as image bearers, we are mirroring that back to one another and reminding us it's true of us on this small, minute level that we can see and hear and think and express ourselves, but it's true of God infinitely, eternally, because he is unchangeable. Guys, a very brief sketch could say so much more, but I really want to make sure we walk out of here this morning with an understanding of how this shapes and impacts our life and actions right now. So number two, why is it important? Why is it important? Nietzsche, the philosopher at the end of the 19th century, famously said that God is dead. And if we were going to put a tagline on God for today's culture, it might be something like, more like God is, he's not dead, he's just largely irrelevant, right? See, God and spirituality are fine as long as they're confined to the private sphere, that's a personal thing with you and God, but don't bring that into the public sphere. Don't bring that into, into school. Don't bring that into the workplace. Don't bring it into conversation with your neighbors. Don't try to push that Bible stuff down our throats. And so what's happened over the course of time 
is that as God has been sort of pushed to the periphery, man has been elevated. And now man becomes the arbiter of his own decisions. The autonomous self is the final authority for all choices, and we end up all doing what is right in our own lives. Now listen to understand how this equation impacts our view of the image of God. You see, because the image of God is based upon this idea of the reality of God, when you lose God, you will also lose man. It's inevitable. See, when you lose God, you lose the standard by which you are to look at, perceive, interact, engage with those who are around you. Everything, all the isms in the world that you can think of, all fundamentally deviate in some important way from their view of God, and the effects on humanity are catastrophic. So, so as different as fascism and communism might be on a piece of paper, they fundamentally do the same thing. They displace God and replace him either with a leader or a philosophy or a party. And when that happens, human beings become expendable. They're, they're to be eliminated or, or cast aside all for the greater good of whatever the party teaches it has to be. You see, when you lose God, it should not, it should not surprise us that our standards for what it means to be human and to engage one another as humans, they go by the wayside as well. That's why Francis Schaeffer, when he was describing current secular ethics, this is 30, 40 years ago, he was very prophetic, where, where essentially man, we want to take the principles of Judeo-Christian religion, the, the ethics, the morals on some capacity, but we don't want God to accompany them. And so we just want to follow the ethical standards apart from God. And Francis Schaeffer that says that man is like a, a, a guy who has his feet firmly planted in midair. And so it should not surprise us at all when this begins a serious descent and slope into all sorts of catastrophically um, denigrating things culturally. And l- l- let me just mention three and as I do, and as I mentioned three things, I, I, I want to like talk about it like globally in a macro level, but I also want to just ask you to sort of apply it within the context of your, of your own personal life on a micro level. So number one, this is important, this idea of the image of God, for us to uphold the dignity of life. When we think about suicide, or infanticide, or euthanasia, or racism, or elder abuse, or discarding the mentally ill, or aborting special needs children, or mistreating the poor, wherever that is happening, you can be sure that there is at its root some distortion of this idea of the image of God. See, when we treat with disdain or as second class, or as inferior, anyone that sort of fits into any of those categories, and there could be a hundred others, we're showing that we have failed to understand the implications for the image of God and the dignity of human life. All of it. Every bit of it. In whatever sphere we find it. 
When you think about this on a personal level, let me ask you a question. Who are the undesirables in your life? And, I, and understand, I did not say, do you have undesirables? Because we all do, right? I just said, who are they? Are they a different group of people? Are they somebody who lives in a different part of town? Are they someone of a different race or socioeconomic status? Maybe someone who's in a political party. You can't believe that person would vote for this or stand for that or support this. How could you be a Christian and do that? Maybe they're part of the undesirables. Maybe it's the guy who stands by the interstate exit, collects money. I don't know who the undesirables are. But parents, if I wanted to find out who your undesirables are and you wanted to find out who mine are, just ask our kids, right? They could tell us immediately, just like that. Who are your undesirables? And think again about how God views them and who they are as made in his image, as image bearers, inherently worth great dignity. Now, man is, is incredibly capable of, of, of terrible sin, terrible darkness, terrible destruction. But unless you begin with the idea that man in the image of God upholds the dignity and the value of human life, all sorts of catastrophic mischief will unfold. Number two, why is it important? We want to uphold the uniqueness of human life, the uniqueness. I was with a, a friend a number of years ago, and I went to his med school class. It was some sort of class on microbiology. It might have been a class in Mandarin as far as I was concerned. I had no idea what was being said. But I do remember one particular comment that the professor or the instructor made when she said, you know, the complexities of the human body lead me to almost believe in a God. And then she said, almost, right? But when we think about atheistic evolution, which puts down to chance you and I being here today, that somehow, some way, through a, a random collision of molecules, that that through random chance that we emerged from the primordial slime, or as R.C. Sproul said, are you and I just giant germs? Hey, that's what he asked. Well, Genesis 1 says, absolutely not. Man is created distinctively from all other forms of life. Now, there are those that call themselves theistic evolutionists. What is a theistic evolutionist? Tim, Tim Keller would support this, and I love Tim. I love just almost everything he teaches which basically says that, that man indeed evolved from lower life forms, but it was at the hand and the bequest of God. Now, let me just say something about this because we don't have time to unpack that here. But when we have our symposium on creation and science on May 8th, that's going to be one of the things that we address. So Wednesday night, May 8th, we're going to be here. It's going to be a joint three congregational thing where we're going to talk about the days of creation and literal versus figurative and how did God create and issues of science and creation. We're going to dive into all that, bring your questions. There's going to be a ton of dialogue. But let me just say this for right now. Putting aside the scientific questions, which I believe are not compelling whatsoever, 
I don't think the Scripture gives room for this. As John MacArthur says, you can't evolve into the image of God. You see that? I don't think science bears it out either, but that's going to be a question we take up. But, but, but the point of this, of, this, of this point is simply this. The image of God maintains that we uphold the uniqueness of human life. It is unique. It is special. It is, it is otherworldly. Parents, when you, when you look, at, look across at the table at your kids, there is the image of God. When they look at you, you are their representation of God in flesh. And that, and that should just scare the socks off of you. <laughs> it scares the socks off of me. That when you, when you go to work, that, that, that for your atheist coworker, you represent God to them. Which is an amazingly staggering thing. So we want to uphold the dignity of human life, the uniqueness of human life, and lastly, we want to uphold the priority of human life. You know, I was traveling this past week, and I can remember traveling on an airline 10, 12 years ago. The big deal is what do you do with cell phones, right? Everybody had a cell phone. It was new technology. Um, airlines have more or less kind of figured that out. But the new thing is like pets, right? Companion pets, emotional support pets. And, and before you send me the email, just remember I love pets. I love dogs. I grew up with them. If our son was not allergic to dogs, we would have a dog. I had a dog. I mean, you get it, Okay. They're a good gift from God. Have, have I given enough qualifiers for it? But can I just say something to all of us? Stop. Americans spend $70 billion on pets. Some of us spend more on pets than we do in terms of our giving and generosity. And let me just say, that's a travesty. That we would prioritize temporal over eternal and great commissions. You may say, you're preaching. Yes, okay. Guys, demographically, you see this catastrophic shift across our culture. In many urban cities now, there are more pets, there are more dogs than kids. When you think about the image of God, this cuts to the quick when it says one of our primary, okay, not our only, but one of our primary capacities as image bearers is that we multiply Okay, this, is, this has all sorts of implications. I don't want to fully go there this morning because that's coming up in a couple weeks when we talk about marriage and family and sexuality. I just want you to put it as a post-it note right now to think about do humans' relationships, do they have priority in my life? That's all we're asking. And how is that priority demonstrated? How is it demonstrated in our generosity how is it demonstrated in our time how is it demonstrated in our capacity how is it demonstrated in our relationships or not demonstrated in our relationships we're on that to come lastly i want to say this the image of god is the great corrective because in your life and my life there, there's going to be two sorts of ways that we err as it relates to relationships with other people. There's two sorts of errors. I think the image of God speaks to both of them, and here they are. Number one, you and I are going to be tempted to think 
that all of life is all about ourselves. That, that all roads lead to us. That our comfort, our personal happiness is sort of the apex of creation. It's what's most important. We will exalt ourselves. We'll make our needs primary. We will, we will, we will think it's about us. And we have to remember, men, women, we have to remember that you and I are just an image. We're just an image, a valuable image, an image full of dignity and truth and purity in our created form, absolutely. But when I say that you are just an image, here's what I mean. You are not God, and I am not God. You've heard it said many times, there is one God, and you and I are not him. We are mortal, we are frail, we are full of sin and self-deception, which just simply means this. This should spark a great deal of humility on our part. A great deal of patience. A great deal of kindness. When we're dealing with our spouse or our children or the people in our group or our coworker or the neighbor or, or whoever it is. Knowing that as God is infinitely, I mean, just think about how patient God is with you and with me. We embody his character as we are the same to our fellow man. So maybe you need that corrective this morning. On the other hand, maybe you need the corrective which looks at everyone around you as expendable. Guys, we're, 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 we're part of a toxic culture that treats others with contempt, particularly when they are an obstacle to our self-fulfillment or our self-actualization. Remember that person sitting across from you, as difficult as it may be, as, as hard-hearted as they may seem, as, as, as relationally complex as they are, this person is made in the image of God. Of God. Worthy of great value and dignity. Every individual, every class, every socioeconomic status, every ethnicity, every background, whatever those imaginables might be for you, how would God, how would the image of God transform the way you look at your neighbor? If you just remembered, he's not, he's not the guy who gets cranky when your kids walk across his front yard. But this is a man made in God's image. Because the image of God obviously is tied up all in our salvation. Because when it came time to save us from the destruction we wrought upon the image of God, we'll get to that in Genesis 3. And we did. We didn't destroy the image of God, but we greatly marred it. We greatly distorted it. And when God said, I'm going to restore that image to you, how did he do it? could have done it a hundred ways. Jesus could have come in, in, in many other aspects or forms, but what did he do? He came as a man, made in the image of God. The firstborn of all creation took on flesh. And the second Adam, Jesus did what the first Adam could not do. He lived a perfect life for you. He was obedient. 
He, he worked, he labored for 33 years, he ministered, he served, he loved, he cared perfectly. And his righteousness is now given to you by faith in him. He offers it back to us, this image of God, as a gift through faith. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this this man who took on flesh and blood to restore to you and I what we were originally created to be? I hope so. Let's pray.